the average tenure is about 17 months. How does it come? One of those things is just a misalignment around expectations of what that leader could achieve and what the reality is often when that leader joins the business. Thinking that you can hire a VP sales and they're gonna fix all your go-to-market and sales issues, I think is a mistake that I see get made time and time again. Because the truth is you could have a million in R, you could have 20 customers, but still not be ready for a VP sales. So my, my kind of six things that I think need to be in place for you to say yes, now is the time to hire VP sales are, are this. So firstly, today we are joined by Tom Glason, the founding CEO of Scalewise. And Tom is here to drop some serious knowledge on hiring VP sales. And trust me, he knows his stuff. Because at Scalewise, they are helping B2B tech companies by providing permanent or interim fractional VP sales. But this makes Tom like super qualified to talk about whether or not you're in the stage of needing a VP sales, not an, an important question, the common slip-ups company makes when hiring one, and three, how to nail it when bringing a VP sales on board. So in today's episode, we'll chat about why timing is everything when hiring, the different sales leadership roles and their respective responsibilities, the magic of using an interview scorecard to keep things fair, and why you gotta get everyone on board when making this big decision. And now, for my conversation with Tom. What is up, guys? All right, if you're still wondering how generative AI is going to change the sales game, say no more because I want to introduce to you Clay. In short, it combines prompt engineering with multiple data sources for ultra-personalized outbound campaigns. It's like something you've never seen before and Clay truly revolutionizes the outbound game. I'm not going to tell you much more, but please just check out wearesales.com slash Clay. That's wearesales.com slash C-L-A-Y. All right, let's go back to the episode. Tom, super, super excited to have you on. Um, and the number one reason why I'm super excited is because normally you were supposed to uh, to go uh, to come in at, at the conference last year and just give a talk. Uh, unfortunately, this couldn't go. This couldn't happen. But so super excited to have you on, on the podcast now. And, uh, and I'm sure we'll still have uh, a lot to unpack. Um, can you maybe, for the audience that doesn't know you yet, Tom, please introduce yourself. Can you also maybe at the same time bring some past experiences so that we get, get a grasp of the, the revenue context that you are active in? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, really, really pleased to be here, Dylan. And yeah, it's a shame we couldn't uh, meet at the conference last year. I'm hoping we get another chance to do that at some point. But, but yeah, I'm Tom Glasson. Um, I've spent uh, about 20 years in B2B tech. Um, over a decade of that time has been leading go-to-market teams within VC-backed uh, SaaS companies, um, normally between kind of Series A to Series C. So that's normally where I come in and uh, and have the most impact. Um, so, you know, big part of my challenge, uh, you know, coming into these businesses is is often taking, you know, what the founder has built and probably sold, um, uh, you know, with maybe a small sales team. Uh, and then I'm, you know, when that Series A funding lands, I'm then coming in to scale that business up to accelerate growth. Uh, to rapidly hire, you know, SDRs, AEs, and uh, and I've done a couple of CRO roles where I've been leading marketing and sales as well. Um, so yeah, that's a, a bit of my background. But I suppose maybe more uh, interesting and, and relevant as well is that, that I founded a community called um, called the London Revenue Collective back in 2018. Because as much as I've enjoyed the jobs that I've done, um, I always felt like there was a lack of support 
for people like me, so senior revenue leaders within fast growth tech. And uh, I wanted to try and find a way of, of connecting up with other leaders and learning from them and uh, and sharing my many challenges. And so uh, the London Revenue Collective was a, was a way for me to do that. And uh, what's actually happened over the last five years is, is that community has grown globally. Um, it's now called Pavilion, um, but I still run the UK uh, chapter, albeit there's chapters all over the world. So, uh, so yeah, similar to the community that you run, um, and you know, I think the reason why I kind of give you that context is is, is what inspired me to then uh, found my own business uh, called Scalewise uh, back in 2020. Uh, and Scalewise, basically, we exist to give to give seed to Series C uh, tech companies access to the right go-to-market expertise at the right time to help them accelerate capital efficient growth. Um, and that support, that expertise comes in a, in a few different ways. So uh, we have coaches and advisors that support across sales and marketing and, and customer success. Um, we do fractional leaders as well and interim leaders. So for those uh, companies that need a bit more hands-on support. And then we also hire full-time uh, leaders from head off to C-level um, as well across, again, sales, marketing, customer success, and RevOps. And, 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 you know, we talk about hiring the right leaders at the right time or getting the right expertise at the right time, because my firm belief is actually most startups get that wrong. Um, they hire the wrong profile, um, sometimes at the wrong time. Um, and it, I think that contributes to this awful attrition rate that we see within B2B tech, which is that the, the VP sales average tenure now is down to 17 months. Um, so there's a huge turnover within these roles. And I, I believe it's avoidable. And I think um, you know, one of the things that we're trying to solve with ScaleWise is to is to help mitigate some of those risks and some of the huge costs that takes place uh, when these mishires happen. I love that. I definitely want to talk about that, especially also because uh, I remember, I think it's about nine to 10 months ago on LinkedIn, you created a, a series of posts, uh, the six top mistake I see SaaS CEOs make when they hire their first VP sales. Uh, and you mentioned a couple of very interesting elements, but not only that, and I would actually recommend everyone to just follow Tom uh, because you make very, very interesting posts uh, on anything really revenue leadership related. Uh, but let's talk maybe about that specific one, uh, that specific series of posts. Like what should people be mindful of? Or I mean, with people, I mean the, the leadership executive team um, at any company, but probably then the companies where you're most familiar with, you know, going from series E to series B, during that growth phase, they might want to hire their very first VP sales. Like what should they be mindful of? Probably the biggest mistake I see get made here, which actually I don't think was mentioned in that in that series of posts, interestingly enough, is, is hiring the VP sales too early. And I can talk about the other six mistakes that I see get commonly made um, in a moment. But this concept of, of, of thinking that you can hire a VP sales and they're going to fix all your, your kind of go-to-market and sales issues, I think is a mistake that I see get made time and time again. You know, a true VP sales is not someone you hire to get your sales going at a startup. It's not someone that you should be hire, hiring, you know, a pre-product market fit, um, you know, just because you as a technical founder or a non-commercial founder want to just like get rid of that problem and give it, give it to a, an expert in inverted commas. Um, my view is actually, you know, if you hire a VP sales too early, in that kind of journey from kind of trying to get to product market fit, then actually you just probably just delay um, your um, your timing to get there. Uh, and the reason why that is, is that you know, to get to product market fit, there's a huge amount of um, learning that needs to happen across the organization, but also from, from those early customers 
um, you know, around how do you product, how do you package, how do you price, you know, how do you how do you tweak the the, the products to, to to meet the kind of needs of the ICP? What is your ICP? And I think there's a whole load of kind of internalized learnings that need to happen there, pulling on external input. That actually, like a VP sales isn't best place to do that. Um, a founder that understands the problem space, that probably has won those first few customers, that really has a passion for, for, for solving that specific problem, they are definitely best placed, perhaps with a small sales team, to get those first few clients over the line and to ultimately reach product market fit. So, my, so the big mistake I see get made time and time again is hiring a VP sales um, too soon. Um, and, and, and I think that's, uh, a classic, very expensive mistake that VP sales normally last six months or so, and then they go back to the drawing board and they realize that they probably need to um, need to build that playbook and that kind of muscle around, you know, the sales motion and, and the sales process and ultimately the value proposition before hiring someone more senior. So that's the first one uh, I see. I think the second one, which I do mention in the, in the post is, is hiring for the future, not, not for now. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you're, and your recurring revenue is at 1 million and you're trying to get to maybe 5 million, what you really need is a sales leader that, that has done that journey from one to five, that, that has that experience. Someone that's hopefully recently completed that, that knows what it takes. Because um, you can't go from five to 15 million until you first got to five. And I think the problem I see is that founders get maybe a little bit and CEOs get a little bit kind of... Um, tempted by this big, you know, bigger name, you know, VP sales, sales leader that's maybe done the five to 15 journey. Um, but what they forget is what they need is someone that can do the one to five. And so they're kind of missing that, that, that skill set, that experience that can do the journey they're on right now. Um, and I think, you know, when in doubt, just always go for the, the, a leader that can solve today's go to market challenges not tomorrow's or at least maybe what you're going to see over the next 18 months or 24 months um and it's very unlikely that a leader that's done the 5 to 15 journey um you know even if they've done that multiple times is going to be effective at coming back in at the 1 million stage because it's a very different set of problems it's a different scale of team uh, and i think yeah the, the other issue i just see there is is like as i say hiring for the future and not for now so that's issue number 2 um issue number 3 um is not using an interview scorecard when you're hiring a VP sales. So I think we all naturally use our gut instinct, I think probably a bit too much in the interview process. Um, you know, we have natural biases um, uh, and I think that can impact our decision-making process when we're, when we're interviewing people. Um, but I think especially when it comes to a sales leader, you know, sales leaders are often pretty good at um, interviewing and, and selling themselves. So you've got to reduce your biases um, because also that, that hire can also be really costly if you get it wrong as well. So my view is you've got to have a really robust interview scorecard. Um, you've got to be really clear about the criteria that you're looking to evaluate those candidates against. Um, you've got to have that unbiased system, basically, that, that draws out the, you know, the experience, the traits that you need at your current stage of growth. And I can't emphasize that. Uh, you know, enough is what do you need right now and over the next 18 months to 24 months um, to, to, to achieve your plan. And I think if you've got that scorecard, you know, it kind of, it can cut through the candidate's charisma or ability to sell themselves in the interview process. And it just gets to the heart of whether or not they have the skills and experience to succeed in your company. So um, yeah, that would be my view. Have a, a good interview panel with the right people, 
uh, and make sure they're all using a, a scorecard and maybe they're, they're assessing different elements of that scorecard, but make sure it's, uh, you know, it's an objective approach to hiring rather than, yeah, what can often be uh, gut feel, um, unfortunately. So if you've got any questions about that, I can reel off another three mistakes that I see get made. Yeah, no, obviously I have uh, I have a couple of follow-up questions on those because those are indeed like uh, very, very interesting ones. Hi guys, before we dive back into the episode, I've got something super, super exciting to share with you. Mark your calendars for May 16 because We Are Sales 2024 is happening. And this isn't just any conference, it is the conference for European sales leaders where you can expect to learn from the best and be surrounded by the most ambitious revenue leaders from Europe. And so whether you're an aspiring sales leader, sales director, VP sales, or chief revenue officer, the We Are Sales Conference is truly the place to be. Tickets are now available and you can grab your ticket by visiting our website at wearesales.com slash conference. Again, it is wearesales.com slash conference. And now back to the episode. To start off with maybe the first one and hiring too soon, I was also kind of confused like, yeah, but does it just depend then on how you describe what a VP sales does? Because maybe it's also, you know, what's in the name really? VP sales can maybe has a different meaning or different uh, time terms of uh, responsibility uh, in one context and the other. So is it just, um, are you then specifically focusing on a specific type of VP sales with specific responsibilities and activities that you mean don't hire for debt too soon? Yeah, that's really important, Dylan. I'm so glad you raised that. Kind of almost differentiating, you know, what's the difference between a head of sales or, or sales director a VP of sales and a CRO. And maybe if I just quickly give you my view of how those three roles differ um, at a high level, and then we can talk about actually what what determines whether you need a VP sales or not. What are those triggers that that make you go, okay, now's the time. So, so in my view, the kind of head of sales or sometimes called a sales manager, maybe a sales director, you know, for, for me, these are kind of more like player managers. You know, they're, they're what I call the doers um, of the sales leadership world. You know, they've generally got a relatively short-term focus. They're focused on like hitting the current quarter's number and the next quarter's number, but they are in the trenches with the reps. They're probably doing the deals themselves. They're carrying their own quota um, and they're probably spread pretty thin across, you know, player and managing, uh, you know, because they're trying to, trying to close deals as well. Of course, they're responsible for hiring reps, firing reps, performance management, um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're not really that strategic because they don't have the capacity to be. They're too in the detail of the deals, the day-to-day, closing their own quotas. Now, I think it's actually fine, you know, if you're a founder um, that's that's grown a small sales team, you're trying to transition from founder-led sales to a more professionalized sales organization, I think it's absolutely fine to get a head of sales in that is that kind of player-manager profile. Um, And actually, you know, they could build on what you've done already. We've seen fractional heads of sales work really well as well there, maybe not doing five days a week, but maybe doing three or four. But that for me is a head of sales. Then the VP of sales is is less of the doer. They're more of the builder, I see them as. And so the VP sales, they're all about creating scalability within the sales organization. You know, at this point, they're really owning that kind of company number, um, but they aren't just thinking about this quarter and the next quarter. They're kind of involved with, you know, the planning process for the whole year. And they're thinking about how do I achieve that plan? What are the resources that I need? You know, they're really owning that plan. And, and, and really, at this point, maybe even thinking about, do I need to develop managers within the team? Um, so they become kind of, you know, they've got a middle manager layer and they become second line managers. 
Um, and so the VP sales is, is more strategic. Generally, you're not carrying your own personal quota. You're owning the company quota and you've got reps that are delivering against that quota and you're owning the roll-up number. Um, and of course, because you're, you're not carrying your own quota, you're able to be more strategic. You're able to think a few more quarters out. You're able to think about, you know, are we focused on the right ICP? Have we got the right playbooks? You know, what content do I need to develop from a sales enablement standpoint? So, you're, you know, you're out of the weeds a bit more as a VP sale. And then the CRO, just to kind of round off the, the three different types of sales leader, because um, I think there is common mistakes that get made about these. The CRO is the strategist. So you've got the doer as the head of sales, the builder as the VP sales, and the strategist as the CRO. And the CRO, you know, they are running the whole go-to-market function. They're not just sales, but they're, they're also running marketing. They're also running customer success. They may even have professional services and revenue operations in there as well. And they are defining the whole go-to-market strategy. They're owning the whole revenue number, the whole life cycle of that, that, that client. So all of the metrics that are associated with, you know, not only acquisition, but retention and upsell and cross-sell and LTV and CAC. So these people are really systems thinkers. Um, they're definitely all over the numbers. Um, they're all about like, how do you make marginal gains at different elements of that kind of bow tie or that funnel? Um, but they are definitely not in the weeds and they are definitely managing middle managers at that point. Um, so they might have VPs underneath them. So just to be clear, so we've got those three different profiles. Now, when to hire a VP sales is often the question I get asked a lot. And, and some people say, oh, is it, is it when we've reached product market fit? You know, is it when we've got to 1 million ARR, uh, you know, when we sign 20 customers? My view is it's, it kind of isn't any of that. A true VP of sales is not someone you hire to, to get sales going at your startup. It's someone you hire to accelerate pre-existing sales performance into hopefully the upper echelon of, of like the, the performance benchmarks that, that, you know, we see within the industry. So you're looking to really drive that, that productivity, that sales velocity, because the truth is you could, you could have a million in R, you could have 20 customers, but still not be ready for a VP sales. So my, my kind of six things that I think need to be in place for you to say, yes, now is the time to hire VP sales are, are this. So firstly, of course, um, you've got to have the capital, I think, and the market traction to, to fund, build, and scale a sales team. Because there's no point putting a VP sales in there if you don't have either the, the market traction or the capital to do that because they should be responsible for scaling that sales team. So that's the first thing, the capital and market traction to, to fund that team. The second thing is I think you've got to have at least two reps, probably more, who are on track to, to, to return a decent yield. And what I mean by sales yield is that essentially that quota to OTE ratio, which is really important in the early stages, like in terms of thinking about, should I hire any more reps? And there's a brilliant piece on this by the Harvard Business Review called the Sales Learning Curve. But I think you've got to be at least a three to one quota to OTE ratio in terms of the performance of your existing reps. At least two of them should be at three to one, probably even four to one quota to OTE ratio. So you show that you've got some repeatability, you've shown that you've got some sales that can be done, um, you've got product market fit. That's the second thing, two reps that are returning a decent yield at least. The third thing, and this gets massively under-indexed, I believe, is you've got to have a demand generation engine that can scale with your planned sales rep headcount increases. So I think the common mistake I see is that you see a sales plan 
that's driven, you know, the revenue number is driven by the number of sales reps that you hire. Uh, and ultimately that number is just a multiplication of the sales reps and quota, but there's not enough focus placed on what is the demand generation engine? How are we going to create the pipeline for them? Because AEs aren't great at consistently creating their own pipeline. Um, so have you got a demand gen engine in place that can support the, the sales hiring that's going to need to happen by that VP of sales? That's the, another key factor, I think. Um, and that often means you've got someone leading marketing or demand gen that you know, has started to um, create some predictability around pipeline. They're really, really important. The fourth thing really important, I think, is um, you've got to be ready as a founder or a CEO to give your VP sales autonomy over sales. And that might be like a simple thing to say, but it's, it's easier said than done for some founders. I've seen too many examples where a founder hires a VP of sales, but they're still all over the sales organization. And they're, and they're kind of not listening or taking feedback or advice from that VP sales. Um, my view is if you're going to hire a, a, an expensive hire like a VP of sales, get out of their way, let them do their work, and, and you don't need to micromanage them. Certainly not the good ones. So that's the, that's the fourth thing is, is being ready to kind of give that autonomy over. Uh, the fifth um, is, I think, being mindful of, but also being able to and ready to hire the post-sale teams that are ultimately going to be needed as your VP sales scales sales, because obviously all of these things require support in some ways. So there might be onboarding support for those customers. There might be customer success demands on the new customers that are going to be brought in. You know, maybe customer support or service. Um, so I think if you're hiring a VP sales, you're looking to scale your client base. You need to be ready to scale the supporting teams that are ultimately gonna support those clients. And, and sometimes that isn't thought about enough as well. And then the final one is, um, I think you have to have the early signs of a repeatable sales process and a clearly understood value proposition. You don't need to have that nailed 100%, but I think you have to have some signs that yes, there's a repeatable process. You know, you've got a value prop that seems to be resonating in the market. You've got a conversion rate from MQL to SAO and SAO to close one that is kind of broadly in the right uh, ballpark as it relates to benchmarks. And now it's about how do you accelerate that? How do you improve those conversion rates? How do you put fuel on the fire? So uh, that was a very long answer to your question about like the good when's one. the right time to hire us, but hopefully that helps. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think I think it's super important to have that context because indeed, again, as I said in the beginning, VP sales can mean something completely different for the one person to the other. So I think it's good that you were able to bring like enough um, evolution in the role so that people can also kind of orient themselves in, in that journey. You said we should have started with the definitions right at the top of the <laughs> podcast, just a level what a VP sales actually is, but I'm glad we've done it now. Exactly. No, so, so do I. Um, no, I also wanted to come back to the scorecard you mentioned um, as the third mistake that most people don't, I mean, many people don't do. Like, I completely agree that we we should use one. Uh, but what are like the, you know, the top parameters or the top things that you want to test for through that scorecard? Like, can you can you make that tangible somehow? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I have I have six pillars for this as well. Everything seems to be in sixes for me today. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of have six pillars that I think about when, when I'm thinking about assessing a VP sales. Um, but actually then I, I have a scorecard that breaks those pillars down into, you know, uh, behavioral questions that 
really enable you to to qualify whether they're a fit. Um, and by the way, if anyone wants my, my VP sales scorecard, please do uh, send me an email or drop me a message on LinkedIn, and I'm I'm happy to sh to share that. So, but the six kind of criteria or six kind of pillars that I think about. The first one is experience, and and this is like. Uh, it, this is kind of like table stakes. And there's a few key things around experience that I'm looking for. So have they sold similar size or complexity deals in a previous role? So my view, that is actually way more important than do they have industry experience? You know, have they sold into retailers? Like that's less important for me. But, you know, finding someone that, okay, if you're doing six-figure deals, you know, 100 to 500k deals, much more important that you find someone that has experience of those type of deals and that kind of sales cycle than someone that's done SMB and transactional sales. So the first thing is like, what is that deal complexity and size? And do they have enough experience in that, in that space? So that's the first thing around experience. Second thing is, have they built and led an early stage sales team like mine? So like if I've got four reps or five reps and you know three SDRs, like, what experience have they got of leading a team of that size? And, and how recent was that experience? Because if that was 10 years ago, and since then they've been leading teams of 30 or 40 or 50 reps, well, that for me isn't relevant enough. So like that experience needs to be recent and it needs to be relevant to my current context as a, as a, as a founder or CEO. And then another like simple one is, have they grown um, you know, a, a business, again, relatively recently from our level of recurring revenue um, to where we're looking to get to in the next 18 to 24 months. And this is to my point earlier about hiring for the now and not for the future. And, and like, you know, if I'm at 1 million and I'm trying to get to five, when did they last do that journey? And hopefully that was recently. If not, you know, you need to really make sure that they're still able to get back in early stage and do a lot of the blocking and tackling and foundational stuff that needs to be done, you know, when you're at that kind of, you know, sub 1 million or 1 million uh, mark. So that's kind of the experience pillar. And then you got the hiring and onboarding pillar, because for me, a VP sales, one of their biggest jobs and most important jobs is hiring and onboarding great reps. Um, and so for, for this, I would be asking what I call behavioral or competency questions. Um, and basically what these questions are, are they look for the candidate to draw on specific examples versus can you give me an, an answer about how you would deal with this type of situation? That's a hypothetical question. I don't want hypothetical answers. I want proper, tangible answers based on previous experience. So a prime example of a behavioral question around hiring onboarding is, um, how have you in the past analyzed, you know, what a ramp rate should be for an AE or an SDR? And how have you improved that ramp rate during now on their onboarding? So like a very tangible, like think about the past, give me an example of like how you think about what that ramp rate should be and how you've improved it. Um, and you can also, yeah, delve into lots of different areas with behavioral questions like that around hiring, but that second pillar is hiring and onboarding. The third pillar for me is coaching because that's a critical part of the VP sales role. You know, you are um, hopefully not um, doing all the deals for your team um, and jumping on every call and closing deals for them. What you really want to be effective at is developing those team members to be, you know, hopefully as good as you or maybe even better than you, right? So, so again, behavioral questions around coaching, things like how do you, uh, or no, tell me about a time maybe when you've coached an underperforming uh, middle manager or maybe an underperforming rep 
um, you know, what was the issue? Uh, how did you approach the coaching? Uh, you know, what was the outcome to that? So you're really looking to dive into experiences they've had coaching other performers, but also coaching top performers, because that's also a key part of the role as well. So asking lots of behavioral questions around coaching is, is really key. Uh, the fourth pillar is sales strategy. Because of course, as a VP sales, as we talked about earlier, you're no longer a doer, you're a builder. And so you're thinking more strategically about the organization. Um, so questions like, you know, tell me about a time when you've made a change to the sales strategy of a company you worked within and what the outcome was. So again, we're using those behavioral questions. We're getting them to reflect on the past and we're kind of diving into how they think about sales strategy and specific changes that they, they made. Um, and then my fifth pillar is, and by the way, you, you know, you'd have multiple questions under each of these pillars, but my, I'm just giving you an example of what my, my fifth pillar is processes and frameworks. Because as a VP sales, what you're hoping to do is create repeatability and predictability within your sales function. And I believe firmly that that comes from having like processes, playbooks, the right frameworks in place that create the kind of guide rails around performance that, that creates that predictability. Um, so, you know, I would, um, I would ask them things like, you know, what is your favorite forecasting methodology and why, you know, have they, do they even have a forecasting methodology and you know, why do they like that particular one? How did they evolve, um, their methodology? What was their forecasting accuracy, you know, in a previous role, um, uh, you know, how far off their, their forecast were they, you know, on the full year basis. So those types of questions I think could dive into. Um, things around forecasting, but then also how do you structure your sales process in your previous company? Um, you know, how did that process evolve and why did it evolve? So, you know, are they using medic? Are they using, you know, spin? What, what methodology do they use? Why do they use it? Do they even have one? And how has that evolved? So really, really important to look at. And then the sixth final kind of pillar for me um, is culture trait and kind of um, that fit around the culture. Now that's gonna be very dependent upon the company that they're, they're joining, um, but I would definitely be um, over-indexing on culture fit um, and really thinking about, is this person gonna be able to assimilate into our culture? Are they gonna be culture additive? And so you're gonna have probably a set of questions that enable you to assess whether they're a cultural fit. Um, you know, I have a bunch of questions if it was a company, someone joining Scalewise, but each company is gonna be uh, different. So they're the kind of six pillars that I think about. And as I said, I've got a, a, a scorecard. If anyone wants it, uh, I can bring it over to them as well. All right, guys, imagine being able to leverage data from LinkedIn, Google, any website, and then leveraging prompt engineering and generative AI to craft the perfect message. That's now possible. Thanks to Clay. Clay truly revolutionizes the outbound game. And so you can try it out for free by serving to wearesales.com slash clay. That's wearesales.com slash C-L-A-Y. All right, let's go back to the episode. While you were explaining this though, I was kind of asking myself, um, if, if you would look at, at it through a matrix, right? You could have um, the company side and the VP sales side, meaning that at the company side, you could have, uh, they have hired um, VP sales uh, before, or it's their first one. And also at the VP sales side, you could say it's my first time being a VP sales, or I have done it a multiple times already. Uh, and here I was more thinking that you were giving um, recruiting advice for the, the quadrant, like it is the company's first time, but I'm looking at VP sales that have been VP sales already in the past multiple times. 
But I'm also asking myself, like, could we also look at people that have only been ICs so far, but that want to make the step towards VP sales, maybe a little bit more affordable, maybe depending on the context of the company, especially if they are not super like VC backed, uh, it might be like the better approach to go. Do you also recommend that? Do you also have advice when it comes to that? Kind of curious. Yeah, really good question, Dylan. And you know, I, I consider that um, a, a stretch VP. So when you take someone that's been at maybe a high-performing IC that maybe has the desire to step up, and and you give them that opportunity to to step into that role, um, I've seen it work well, but I've also seen it go horribly wrong. Um, and I think uh, we're probably too quick in the industry, I believe, to promote individual contributors into leadership roles uh, without really thinking about if it's the right thing for them um and secondly do they have the right support to make that transition successful um and, and the right thing for them is really important because i think reps aes often believe that that is just the natural next step is you have to then become a manager and, and that's just the kind of rite of passage i would actually challenge that um i i think not gr not all great reps in fact many great reps don't make great leaders because actually the skills required to be a great rep, quite different to being a great leader. You know, when you're a great rep, you're very, very focused on, you know, yourself, your own performance. You know, you're often competitive. Sometimes you're a bit of a lone wolf. You know, you're, of course, you're a great communicator. You can talk to clients. You're very good at uncovering and diagnosing needs and hopefully managing that kind of stakeholder map. But actually when you move into management, you know, you have much less control over those deals. And you have now of trying to gain, you know, control through other people. And that requires a different skill set. Um, but also not not any of that. I think that, you know, it can often be actually really difficult to move from having a peer relationship with someone to then moving into a manager role with them. And I've seen that go wrong a few times as well, where, you know, that that relationship either retains too much friendliness about it or they go completely the opposite way and they become quite dictatorial and and, and kind of hard line with with the people that they work peers of and that middle ba balance that middle ground is is so so important now if we're talking about bringing someone in externally maybe that maybe that problem doesn't exist of course that's great because you don't have those dynamics those relationship dynamics but i would still say to my second point earlier giving that individual the right support to be successful is absolutely key because you know you are essentially taking a big step into the unknown um, and this is an expensive mistake that you could make if that person comes in um, and isn't able to effectively improve performance and in fact actually reduces performance because they don't manage the team in the right way you know the team starts to get disengaged and i've seen this by the way multiple times um, you know then you start to get attrition as people leave because that manager just isn't developing and supporting them well enough and before you know it what you, were, what you were hoping was improved sales performance has now taken you backwards and now you're, you're in a real mess. So, so I think it can be done, but you know, one, one of the things that we do at ScaleWise is we, we provide VP sales and coaches. So we, you know, we match our clients up that are looking to make that move, maybe promote someone that hasn't done the role and we give them a really experienced VP sales um, that works for them you know, on a coaching basis, a mentoring basis, and really make sure that they're, um, yeah, they're able to kind of understand their blind spots, have that mirror held up to them, you know, coach them in the areas that, that they need to be developed and, and hopefully smooth that, that journey from IC to, to, to lead it because it is a, 
it's a way more challenging journey that people expect, I think. Yeah, like you mentioned earlier, the the average tenure is about 17 months. Uh, because I wanted to come back on that. Like, how does it come? Is it just because the job is so hard, or is it because company grow fast and you know they want to do they want to do it again somewhere else, and then that's why they they switch? I think that's that would be like the positive scenario, but I don't think that's the case. So, why 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 is it? Of course, that does happen, right? You know, um, I mean, I I think about I've had a, I've had maybe a couple of less than two two year tenures, um, but that's actually been me deciding to leave after I've had to do actually quite a big turnaround job and um, and and you know restructure the teams and and actually it didn't make sense for me to be there anymore and, and I moved on to the next thing. Um, but you know I think that speaks to actually one of the big biggest issues that I see in terms of hiring leaders is. It's just that alignment between expectations, you know, what we're going to get from this person, um, what type of performance improvements we might see and over what time horizon and what the reality is often uh, being when that leader joins the business. So I think the reason why the 17 month tenure issue um, is a big challenge and, and what I think possibly causes it, well, there's a couple of things that cause it. Um, but I think one of those things is just a misalignment around expectations of what that leader could achieve. Um, and often it means that typically they've inherited a plan, a revenue target, um, which is way too ambitious, um, which quite frankly, isn't going to be hit by anyone. Um, and I'm thinking specifically around VC batch businesses here where they've maybe gone and closed the series A, they've committed to two X or three X growth over the next year. They've gone and hired a VP sales that has, um, inherited that plan. And now really they are, they're, 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 they've been given what I call a hospital pass, which is, you know, essentially like it, it's never going to work out. Um, and of course they do their best to hit the plan. Um, but ultimately it was just too ambitious. Um, it wasn't going to get hit. So that's one of the things that misalignment between what's achievable and, and what can be achieved. And then the second thing I see, um, that I think contributes to this, this failure rate or this attrition rate, um, is just, as I talked about earlier, not finding the right profile of leader, not being clear about what you really need. Do you need a doer? Do you need a builder? Do you need a strategist? You know, um, do you need someone that's got SMB experience, someone that's got you know, industry experience? You know, what what is the real profile of the leader that's needed? And I often see that get overlooked or some things being over-indexed relative to others. Um, you know, I have lots of stories around, you know, um, someone being hired for their black book because they've got all of these industry contacts and they're selling into the same industry. Actually, that black book is is not really worth a huge amount when you consider they just don't have your stage of business experience. They haven't run or grown a team, you know, at your stage. Um, uh, and therefore, they're, they're not able to do some of the stuff that needs to be done to, to, to take you from one million to five, for example. So I think over-indexing on the wrong things is a, is a key issue. And often what ends up is, is either the leader figures out that they're not fit or the company figures out that they're not a fit, and you know, before you know, it, one of them is is fired, or or, or they move on to the next thing. So, um, yeah, there's other there's other things that contribute as well, for sure. But I think they're the two the two big ones for me. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And and like you mentioned, it's uh, it's it it goes both ways. So it's also the VPCL that's being hired that I guess needs to be careful somehow, or needs because it, it also reminds me of a of a quote I I read through one of your LinkedIn posts. Before accepting the role, make sure you have early visibility into the sales plan you will inherit. Uh, I think it's go, it goes back with what you said. Yeah, really. I mean, really key. I think, you know, 
as a VP sales joining a new company, I think firstly, and most importantly, you've got to do a really good bit of due diligence. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely have been guilty of not doing enough in the past and, and thinking when I'm coming into a company that it's, it's a certain type of environment and uh, there's a certain amount of pipeline and the unit economics uh, in terms of the kind of cost of sale is in a certain place. And then you get into the business and you realize it's very different. It was why I had to lead quite a big restructure in one of the companies I was in, just because the cost of sale was, and the unit economics were completely out of whack based on what I was led to believe coming in. So I think that due diligence is really, really important um, just to limit your risk of, of picking up the hospital pass when you come in, that, 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 that plan that's unachievable. And I think that due diligence probably needs to come in a few different forms, in my view. I think, um, of course, you know, you want to meet as many you know, team members as you can. You ideally meet investors if there's investors. But I'd also be speaking to customers as well, really understanding, you know, what's their view of the value prop? Um, you know, why are they sticking around? You know, what would cause them to churn? You know, all, all that stuff that's really going to help you think about the value prop and how strong that value prop is, I think is really important. Um, the other thing I think that you need to get visibility of, in my view, is, is the CRM. Um, so I would often you know, encourage people that I coach that are taking roles to say, once you're given an offer uh, to, to join a company and they say, look, this offer is conditional upon positive references, um, I would say, well, I accept that offer, but it's conditional upon a bit of my DD. And one of those things is um, I, I would need to get access to, to your Salesforce or HubSpot instance because um, I really want to just take a look at the pipeline and what I'm seeing in there and some of the conversion rates. So I think it's really important that you get access to, to their CRM as a part of your DD process. The other thing, um, which, which I, I did once as well, which is really insightful and I encourage others to do, is, um, is the most recent board meeting minutes, assuming they're having you know, relatively regular board meetings. Now, I want to see what's being talked about at those board meetings. I want to see what the top priorities are, where the challenges are. Um, I don't want to see that kind of unfiltered view of, uh, of what's happening at a macro level within the business as well. So I'd be asking for that uh, too. Uh, and then I would also be doing some back channel references on the founders. I made a mistake once where I didn't do this uh, and I joined a business and I hadn't realized that the two co-founders were basically at war with each other. They were both trying to get each other out of the business. And I think if I'd done some back channel references and a bit more DD, I would have realized that. Um, but it put me in a very difficult position sat between uh, the two of them. So, so yeah, DD is, is super, super important. Um, but I also think it's really important to think about when you join a business, if you're going to be successful, like building those early relationships with your team during your onboarding, you've got to get buy-in really quickly, I think, um, because you're ultimately going to be coming in, probably making some changes. You may have to be firing some people, hiring some people. So I think getting in and having very open and honest conversations with your team members, you know, really um, showing them that you, you care, um, but also, you know, showing what your expectations are. So I would do something whenever I joined a company, I would have the guide to working with me, which is a bit like a manual for, for you know, how, how I think, the things that I value, what my belief systems are, how I like to work, what I expect from my team members. And that was just a really great way of level setting from the get-go, what they can expect from me. But it also opened up the conversation around what they're like, what their belief systems are, their values, how they like to work, how they like to be managed. And I think as soon as you can get that kind of open dialogue happening with your team members, uh, the quicker you're going to ramp, the quicker you're going to build relationships and hopefully have impact. I love that. It also makes me think of something else that uh, someone 
said one day uh, inside our community. Um, and it maybe also goes back to, to maybe, I mean, depending on your opinion on it, uh, if it is a mistake that potential CEOs make when hiring a first VP sales. Uh, but I know someone in the community wanted to, yeah, get the job as the VP sales inside a company, but he had to have a conversation with the current VP marketing. And that person could really just say yes or no, because they strongly had to work together. And so I'm also curious, like, what is your opinion on having that uh, being part of the hiring process, having those discussions with VP customer success, VP marketing, maybe VP product, maybe, you know, whatever uh, stakeholders are actually involved in the job role um, and having them having like a hard opinion on the, the final decision. Yeah, I think you touched on a really important point here, Dylan, and it's something that we do a lot at Scalewise. So if a client comes to us and says, look, um, can you help us hire a VP of sales or a CRO or a, a, a VP marketing? A really important part of our process is, is getting that internal alignment across key stakeholders um, and, and really nailing down who is involved in the hiring process, what is their role in the hiring process, are they vetoes um, or are they actually decision makers? Like you know, who ultimately has the final decision? But that that internal alignment piece is, is super, super important because what I've also seen, and you're touching on this a little bit as well, is um, you know they're looking for a VP of sales, but the VP marketing thinks they need this type of profile. The CEO thinks they need this type of profile. The VP product thinks this type of profile is going to work the best for them. And actually what that creates is, is, is a real complex, lengthy, often failed interview process that can drag on for months and months because there isn't that alignment. And before you know it, people are being vetoed all over the place and candidates just, you know, having a really messy experience as well. So, so what we tend to take the time to do is, is interview those key stakeholders up front. Um, we really understand like where the problems are within the sales organization that needs solving. So ultimately what type of profile is best placed? And then we, we listen to the feedback from people, but we ultimately pull them all onto the same page with our guidance around, this is the profile you need. These are the things that are must-haves. These are the things that are nice to have. And we're all going to agree in this stakeholder meeting that this is, this is what we're looking for. Sure. And I think once you have that, it becomes much harder for people to just push back or veto candidates because you can just bring them back and say, well, hold on a minute. That was a, that was a nice to have. That wasn't a must have. And by the way, let's look at our interview scorecard. Look, they're scoring really highly across these things versus these other two people that you're saying you prefer. So I think this is all about bringing objectivity into the process, which is hence the interview scorecard, but it's also about having the right alignment and the right people involved in the process. And so our view is that that's, um, that's the bit that a lot of exec search firms don't do. Um, you know, they take a they take a JD, a VP sales JD, and then they just go out and find candidates and throw CVs at the company, uh, hoping something sticks. Our belief is if you're going to get this right, you've got to do the work up front to get that alignment, to really nail down the brief, to really make sure everyone's on the same page, whilst you waste time for everyone. I think that's a, a wonderful way to, to end this discussion, Tom. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time for coming on the show. Um, is there like a way that you want to use this platform for as a call to action? Maybe, yeah, maybe you can shout out skill-wise, uh, maybe a specific call to action. Yeah, I, you know, if anyone wants to talk about anything go-to-market related, um, you know, want some advice, some support, 
um, needs some some help either you know by the hour, whether it be kind of mentoring or whether it be by the day, if it's a kind of fractional leader um, or you're looking for a full-time hire, you know, we can definitely have that conversation. We'd love to help. Um, as I said, we take a quite a different approach to a normal search firm. Uh, we believe we're adding way more value. And uh, and actually, we also believe that not every company is quite ready for a full-time hire. And so we'll challenge and we'll push back on that as well. And often we can find a more cost-effective solution than just going out and hiring a VP sales. It might be that we can put in a coach and develop someone internally, like you were mentioning, Dylan. It might be that someone for two or three days a week is actually a really nice, flexible way of getting the support that you need uh, without blowing your budget. So we'll be completely honest. Um, so if you want to learn more about what we do at Scalewise and get help, uh, you can email me at tom at scalewise.com uh, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, I love it. And obviously, if you want the scorecard that Tom mentioned, also, you you know where to reach him. Tom, it was such a pleasure. Um, I wish you nothing but the best and see you next time. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. That's it. We've once again reached the end of an episode. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And until next week with a fresh new episode.